April is Be a Donor Month, a time when Canadians are asked to think about organ donation. It's an easy process and signing up to be a donor is often as simple as checking a box. But why don't all of us do it? What are some of the barriers that stand in the way of this life-saving act of altruism? We're going to ask those questions today. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. Organ donation is more than just checking a box. Discussions with family, with doctors, and with experts in the field are very important as well. Healthcare providers and officials have long been working on a way to increase the number of organ donors in Canada, and a lot of psychology is involved in that work. Today, we're going to speak with one of those healthcare experts to learn more about motivation and barriers when it comes to organ donation. My name is Jake Crawshaw. I'm a postdoctoral fellow based at McMaster University and uh, embedded within the Hampton Health Sciences. My background is health psychology and uh, behavioral science and also health services research. I've got a quite varied background there. And the reason why I have an interest in uh, organ donation is actually my previous role up at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and the University of Ottawa. There's a really fantastic research program that I was working in. And one of their particular interests is around pro-social behaviors such as donation, whether that's tissue donation, blood donation, and organ donation. So I was working in this space quite intensively a few a few years ago, but this is something that I'm continuing to collaborate on with colleagues up in Ottawa and the University of Montreal, and also bringing it down to colleagues at McMaster. So it really is a, a multidisciplinary, multi-institution endeavor with regards to this, uh, this research of deceased organ donation and the reasons why people might donate or not. Terrific. And that is what I wanted to talk to you about today is reasons why people may or may not. Uh, you mentioned blood donation, and that strikes me as something very different because you have to physically go in, you get the needle in your arm, they take the blood out, and then you go home and you can do it again and again and again. Yeah. Uh, whereas organ donation is something that really only happens after you die. And presumably, if you die in a fairly terrible way, right? It must be a different mindset for people making the decision to do one versus the other or both. Yeah, I think so. And if you think about, you know, the steps that are involved in people's going through those different decisions and, and stages of behaviors, as you say, with blood donation, there's multiple steps involved. One has to go and uh, sign up, get an appointment, go down there and, and do that. Whereas organ donation, a deceased organ donation, you know, it is a two minute process to register one's uh, preference. However, what I guess we're going to be chatting about is that it's not that simple. There are multiple barriers that may prevent people or make it a challenge for people to to think about organ donation and and again registering further down the line so i guess we'll get into the the meat and potatoes of, of that a little bit all right well let's do that right now what are some of the factors what are some of the barriers that people experience when they're considering whether to become an organ donor or not i found it very easy you just fill out the little card you put it in your wallet and presumably uh, if i end up in the hospital and they look through my wallet they have the card mm. and they can go ahead and, mm. and make the mm. decision what are some of the barriers that people face that prevent them from filling that yeah card? so i mean it's a really good point uh, i mean i think maybe just a little bit of background first around this within this kind of research area i mean we know that Globally, the demand for transplantable organs outstrips the supply, which highlights that there's a real need that we need to increase the number of organs that are available for, for transplant. We know in Canada, there's over 4,000 people that are currently waiting for an organ, which um, unfortunately, some of those people pass away whilst on the waiting list, waiting for an organ. So again, that's a huge 
public health concern there. And what's interesting is that generally public opinion on deceased organ donation is very positive. There's very positive attitudes towards deceased organ donation. For example, in Ontario, around 80 to 90% agree in principle with organ donation. So it's not necessarily kind of an attitudinal thing. Public opinion is very positive towards donation. But what we also know is that this doesn't translate into people actually signing up and registering their preference for, for deceased organ donation. For example, in Ontario, it's about 35% of every Ontarians that are registered. So there's a bit of a mismatch there around public opinion. Does it translate into um, actually organ donation registration? And then what we also know is that actually the, the number of steps that are required for actual donation to happen you know, it's a very, very rare event that organ donation does actually happen. And there's different barriers, not only from the individual regist uh, registering or not, but thinking about other healthcare providers involved in that, the health system, how all of that is set up to try and support people making decisions about organ donation further down the line, not only registering, but actually getting thinking a bit further along around whether people actually donate, whether donation actually happens. I'm hoping you can give me maybe an example of how we've set up our healthcare system to encourage this. Is it somewhere, is it in primary care when you go see your doctor? Does the doctor suggest to you, hey, have you thought about this? Uh, how do we set that up to encourage it? One of the pieces of research that we did was we looked at all of the randomized trials that were essentially testing ways of um, how to encourage organ donation registration. And these were conducted, we found that there were 46 trials that over the, over the years that have looked into this. And they were really conducted in a range of different settings. Some of them were leveraging people going to the DBLA to get their licenses where you can go and register for organ donation. Uh, some of them were in community settings focused on kind of certain uh, ethnic groups or equity seeking groups where registration and donation is lower than the general population. There's been some studies that have been done in primary care. So using that time where you're in a, rate, a waiting room, for example, seeing your family doctor, seeing as that's an opportunistic moment to encourage or promote organ donation. And so, and then also in schools as well, there's been different studies that have been con conducted. So I don't think there's an exact setting or location where, where this is an exact science. I think researchers have been trying to identify perhaps one of those opportunistic moments where people might be amenable to receiving information about organ donation and, and you know, would actually be able to act upon that. So, you know, doing it there and then, if they can register, then that's obviously going to be helpful if that's built into these different study designs. So there's multiple different settings, kind of community-based, healthcare-based, and, and other locations that have been leveraged with some success, some less success, but that's the kind of settings that we're, we're talking about here. And over time, I, I, are we seeing more people joining the organ donation registry, the list? Uh, are more people doing this now than were, say, 10, 15 years ago? Are these efforts bearing fruit? Uh, or is it still sort of where we used to be? Are we still having the same issues that we once did, knowing that there's 4,000 people waiting for organs who can't get them right now? Yeah. So in Canada, we know that the number of organ donations and, and surgeries are increasing. There's been a huge increase in that in the last 10 years, which is really positive. So that means that more transplantable organs are, are reaching those recipients and saving lives in that way. In terms of the actual number of people registering, it seems to be holding steady around a third uh, across Canada, where we're seeing uh, rates of um, registration there. 
there are have been reports of certain spikes and increases within that. For example, one of the well publicized increase in organ donation was as a result of the 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 tragic accident in 2018 in Saskatchewan, the Humboldt bus crash that actually led to a huge public outpouring and led to a real boost in organ donation uh, registration because it really hit the hit the headlines and 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 kind of caught the the public's attention now obviously you don't want to rely on these tragic events to push the needle with regards to registration but i think there's certainly area for improvement within canada and i think you know the fact that we it's not only just uh, increasing awareness now as I mentioned, it's 18 to 9 percent kind of uh, happy or uh, positive about organ donation. We really need to be trying to translate that public opinion into affirmative people registering. And that's the challenge because, you know, those numbers don't lie, that there's a, there's a ways to go to try and increase that. What we're sure. also seeing is that um, some provinces, so for example, Nova Scotia, they've decided to move to an opt-out system. And that's the first province or territory in North America that decide to do that. So what that means is that people are in, in Nova Scotia are presumed to have consent to organ donation, and they have to actively opt out of that process. And this has been seen in other countries with some success, but I think it's clear to say that this is not a silver bullet. Just moving to this opting out system, is n- doing that alone is not really going to shift the needle. There are going to have to be multiple strands to this strategy to try and support people to make the right decisions for themselves and to try and you know increase uh, registration. I'm very curious about this. This is something I wanted to talk to you about, this opt-out system, mm. which has been used in countries around the world. And uh, now you're saying Nova Scotia is using that here in Canada. Yeah, But you said it hasn't really moved the needle in terms of the number of people who end up donating organs. I, I'm wondering why that is. It strikes me that that would be, it would be a silver bullet almost, that opting out yep. is as much of an effort as opting in is. Yeah. So what we find is, and, and this is with any sort of opt-in or opt-out uh, system, when it comes to actual decisions about donation in a hospital setting, Family are always asked, or next of kin are always asked about their pre- uh, about whether they agree to donations. So even if somebody's agreed to uh, be a registrar, the family's always consulted, or next of kin are always consulted, and they ultimately make the decisions. They they have the final say when it comes to making decisions about organ donation. So one of the, one of the things in terms of not only trying to encourage people to register, but also telling loved ones and next of kin. That's almost as important. So if you're thinking about registering, you ha- you really want to try and share that information with, with your next of kin and family members so they're aware of your decision. Some of the work that we I was doing at, um, at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute was actually looking at that phenomenon. So speaking to family members in hospital, trying to work out and whether we can understand their decision-making process on behalf of patients that are unfortunately passing away or have passed away, but are eligible for donation and seeing if we can better support actually at that moment when decisions are being made. And you can imagine those situations are very time sensitive, incredibly emotional and all of that. So it's it's a really challenging and that project, which is ongoing, by the way, is to try and tap into that a little bit more, see if we can understand the decision-making processes, how family members or substitute decision-makers make decisions on behalf of their loved ones in those moments. And ultimately, we want to try and use that to see if we can train staff to be better, to be more supportive, have better skilled at having these conversations with families, because we don't want to miss any opportunities where 
there are potential organ donors that are eligible unfortunately at the at the end of life but what we still see is that there are gaps there that happened some potential potential organ donors do slip through the cracks and because organ donation is such a rare event if you think about all of the people that pass away in hospital uh, it's nice. a very rare event just with everything that has to line up we really want to try and understand that situation better so we can maximize the opportunity in that respect you say this study is ongoing. What do we know so far? Can we say anything so far about the decision-making process for a family member in a very emotionally fraught situation? They're having a really hard time. They're in a hospital and they're, this is being suggested to them. Do we understand anything now about that decision-making process? Is your study building on that or are we trying to find out everything new at, from this point on? Yeah, so, I mean, we know quite a bit uh, from other studies that have looked at what we call retrospective design. So they're going back in time and, and and speaking to people after the fact about how they made decisions. And the whilst that's incredibly valuable to do, kind of that retrospective looking back in time may cloud kind of perspectives or or kind of the, the recall of, of, of that. So with this study, the one of the unique aspect of it is uh, we're actually using a lot of psychological theory to try and unpack and unpick some of the the barriers and facilitators that may happen for people making decisions. And also we're trying to recruit family members and substitute decision makers at the time when they're making those decisions and then we're interviewing them after the fact. So the idea within that is that we're trying to get ahead of the game with we're speaking to these patients and making sure we've got a really rigorous and robust way of uh, of, of capturing that data uh, that is perhaps more um uh, kind of rigorous and uh and 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 not truthful but um you know uh, kind of effective after the fact rather than kind of looking back in time which other studies have done um so it is quite a neat study it's uh, it's been a number of years where we've been uh, doing this unfortunately covid did uh, disrupt a lot of the transplant services in 2020 and 2021. Conducting research in this space was very difficult at that point, but we're getting to a point where we've nearly completed our interviews and we're going to be analysing that data. And that's going to be such an interesting deep dive into, into this because these are one-on-one -on -one interviews with family members. A few months down the line, we're capturing people that have agreed to donate, that didn't agree to don donate, and also people that may have been eligible but weren't approached and that's tapping into that where i said that sometimes there are gaps where people are eligible but for whatever reason they aren't approached and and that's a that's like a health system a health process problem that that needs addressing as well for sure i you'll have to come back when you publish the study so we can <laughs> uh, do a follow-up here yeah you mentioned earlier the humboldt bus crash and how that actually uh, did result in an increase in people donating. I remember I was in high school or college uh, when 9-11 happened yep. and you sort of feel powerless in a way. What can I do? And uh, some friends and I went to donate blood because that was all we could think of to do. And not that it would help any of the victims, not that it, you know, it didn't really have a direct connection uh, with the event, but something like that. And same thing when COVID started, Yes. I went back and started donating blood again because it just felt like something maybe I could do in some way. Yep. Uh, right yep. there are these little triggers that prompt you to do this. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that, you know, obviously we can't create massive tragedies in order to to do this, like <laughs> you said. But uh, what is it that makes us 
think that way that it, that an event can precipitate this, but yeah. constant messaging maybe can. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think what you're getting out there is attempted to be tried to be captured in these big marketing campaigns. You know what we see with the Olga donation uh, registration literature is you know there's often trying to kind of provide information from credible sources. So these might be donor recipients or people that have don uh, donated or people that are registered. Because I think that personal story just with public health messaging is is quite important and is perhaps more convincing or more motivating than, than other forms of, of, of uh, kind of messaging. There's certain psychological processes or areas of interest that have been studied a little bit within this literature. So as I was saying about that big review that we did of 40 plus studies, there were some studies looking at certain behavior change techniques around message framing and also priming. Essentially, what that means is around, around message framing. One of the areas where they focus on is around this feeling of anticipated regret. So essentially, this is trying to initiate feelings of regret about how one might feel in the future if, for example, they don't register or, or they don't register for, for donation. So it's trying to harness that psychological component within, for example, a marketing campaign that has been utilized a little bit uh, to some effectiveness within organ donation. In terms of priming, another psychological kind of area, there's this phenomenon called re uh, reciprocity priming. This, for example, this might be trying to encourage one to consider their potential future need for donated organs. And this might potentially be motivational in themselves. For example, if you're thinking about, you know, put yourself in the, uh, in your shoes in, in the future, if you needed a, if you needed a transplantable organ, would you accept it? And if that is the case, then if you are, if, if you're willing to accept one, then maybe you should, you know, it's kind of fair or or kind of reassuring to, to be a donor as well. So these are two areas within the psychological literature that have been leveraged a little bit within the organ donation registration literature. However, a, these studies are mainly focused on whether these affect organ donation registration intention. So that's people's, you know, do you intend to do it? And that might be captured do, using a survey, for example. And there are far less studies looking at actually, does that predict actual registration? And, and that's a bit of a limitation within the organ donation registration literature. A lot of it is focusing on people's intention. And what we know very, very strongly from the literature is that in people's intention doesn't translate to their behavior in a lot of ways. And you have this thing called the intention to behavior gap. And we need to try and address that gap because people have good intentions. A lot of people have very good intentions in the new year yeah. <laughs> when it comes to uh, New Year's resolutions. But how often does that translate into actual behavior and actually lasting behavior change as well? So there really is a, a kind of a gap in the literature there. But what we can do, we can use knowledge from uh, psychology and health psychology, different areas, and, and we can. There's opportunity to apply that to organ donation, and I think as well, just that final point around, we need more studies actually looking at what predicts organ donation registration, and I think that's sometimes very a practical barrier in terms of being able to access registries and making sure registries speak, so you can actually harvest the data on how many people registered, how many people didn't, as a result of your campaign or your intervention or your randomized trial that you're trying to, to do there. So there's a few issues there within kind of both a, a research methodology aspect and also just some of the, uh, uh, some of the other aspects to conducting research in this space.
thinking about intentions, right? I I have a pile of books here that I put together (laughs) on uh, January 1st that I intend to read. And I have not opened any one of them yet because they're just a pile of books. And that first step seems like, a, you know, a daunting one. I've got to have eight hours free at some point. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, this may well be well outside your area of expertise, but if, if people sign up, people who sign up to become organ donors and make it an intentional thing and make that decision, do they then behave differently as a result? Like, I'm an organ donor, but I never consider oh, if someone might actually need my liver, I probably shouldn't be doing what I am currently doing to it. Do people actually behave differently once they have made that decision and maybe try to protect their organs a little bit and live healthier? Or does that not happen at all? That's a really interesting question. I'm not, uh, it is kind of outside of my uh, wheelhouse. I'm not aware of any literature that's really looked at that. However, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not kind of setting my hat on that. One thing, one thing I would say, uh, when it comes to organ donation registration, there's sometimes some misperception or myths around eligibility for organ donation. For example, if people think they're a certain age, well, you know, why would my liver be any good? Or if uh, if they've had uh, other health problems, and again, that might be a barrier because they may perceive themselves as well. Why would anyone uh, want my organs after, a, you know, if I've been uh, a heavy drinker or something like that? But actually, that shouldn't be a barrier to, to registering. I think the oldest donor in Canada was over 90 years old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so age isn't a barrier when it comes to you know the the bottom line of actually eligibility for 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 donating so and i think that's one thing that people doing public health campaigning that's one of the aspects where they try and focus is it's not these these perhaps um, self-perceived barriers and are not actually barriers when it comes to donation people at any age any kind of level of uh, health or illness is eligible for for donation whether that translate into actual donations further down the line is is kind of to be debated but at this point we need to increase the number of people registering the idea is that that would that would seep down into actually increasing the number of donations that happen as well and not only that i mean there is a capacity thing as well you know canadian Health services have to be set up to increase the number of donations that happen. They have to have support for families. So it's not just increasing donation on its own. There has to be support and resources within the health system to support increased donation as well. And I, and I think that's really important. It's a multifaceted, a multi-pronged approach that's needed to really shift the needle with this uh, with this challenging area. Excellent. Yes. I want to come back to that. All I was, I was thinking of a campaign in my head, you know, want to keep your New Year's resolution, become an organ donor, and uh, you're more likely to be healthier, that sort of thing. But you mentioned some myths. And the one that I hear quite often, and I am going to presume that it isn't the case, but people who are afraid that if they sign up to become an organ donor, that when they're on life support, the plug might be pulled early so that people can harvest those organs rather than letting them recover and maybe they might stay alive if they weren't an Mm -hmm. organ donor. Is that really a thing? It is not a thing. That is 100% a myth. Healthcare providers working in in that space are absolutely 100% dedicated and focused in prioritizing the, the needs of the patient and the families in that context. So, however, that is a prevailing myth as you as you said eric and it is not the only one there's there's been research looking at kind of uh, again sort of um 
systematic reviews, looking at multiple studies, trying to identify what are some of the barriers, what are some of these things that are um, impeding people from registering or being being a, having a positive kind of perception about organ donation. And that's one of them. Think about body integrity as well. So there's concerns about, you know, perhaps if, if I pass away and I want an open casket, if I agree to donation, then uh, I'm going to be disformed. Uh, that it's not going to be possible. And again, that's that's a myth that has, has been widely debunked. There's also a, a huge issue around equity deserving groups and the, the issue of medical mistrust and negative or poor or inequitable experience within, within healthcare that I think is a real barrier because what we see is that uh, rates of donation within uh, Black, Indigenous and, and peoples of colour is is uh, is lower than than other uh, ethnicities and some of that may be down to this this medical mistrust and that really needs to be tapped into and that's that's not an issue solely on organ donation i think that's a wider issue in terms of healthcare access people going to see or uh, engage with healthcare providers and trying to uh, to to try and uh kind of go back and and really think about some of these inequities that have happened and how that impacts on people's access to healthcare and health-related decisions as well. So not only organ donation, but how people engage with other healthcare-related things as well. So, so it's a wider issue. But I think for some of these myths, there are lots of websites that can be uh, accessed uh, that really provide this information in layman's terms, in really easy to use terms, and going through some of these these uh, these myths that can be uh, problematic when it comes to donation. For example, in Ontario, it's uh, the Trillium Gift of Life Network. That would be the main organ donation registration. In BC, it would be BC Transplant. And all the different provinces have have these these websites which have that available data. So the information is there. I guess it's a signposting issue. And then, you know, it's not just information as well. We need to be tapping into these other parts of psychology and behavioral science to try and uh, address this issue. Yeah, uh, we will put those links into the show notes here so people can go to them uh, based on what province you're in listening to this. You mentioned earlier healthcare capacity, right? The capacity of the system to deal with the donations that may or may not come in. We have 4,000 people on a waiting list right now. Many of them are not going to receive the organs because not enough people are donating and the system isn't mm -hmm. ready to accept it. If every single Canadian became an organ donor and, uh, you know, put that little card in their wallet and told their family and made sure that they knew they wanted their organs donated, would we have enough to meet the demand? Um, I would love to see as trying to address if, if that was the case uh i would love to tr try and see the healthcare system try and adapt to that i think people and advocates working in this space would absolutely love never mind 100 percent of canadians that were registered but even a shift up to to other countries for example spain is the what is the country globally that's leading in terms of uh, rates of uh, of donation there um but I, I think it is you know there's a long way to go uh with with regards to that it's it's a bit of a hypothetical question that, that is quite challenging to answer but i think even just trying to encourage even small amount you know percentages worth of increase in in registration rates i think ultimately you know if we can if we can improve the lives of people waiting speed up the process of, of people waiting for donations and reduce the number of people that are unfortunately passing away whilst waiting for an organ donor uh, an organ donor then that's only going to have a, a a huge impact on on uh, healthcare in canada 
Definitely. Now, you mentioned communities of color being a little more hesitant because of their experiences with the healthcare system. And as a completely non-medical professional uh, myself, I don't know if this is the case, but I would imagine that you are more likely to be a match as a donor to someone within your own ethnic group. Is that accurate or does that have anything to do with it overall? I, are those groups suffering as a result of not having as much, uh, as many uh, organ donors? My, un my understanding is that donation uh, is not uh, matched on uh, ethnicity or ethnico um, aspects. However, this is kind of getting into outside of my uh, my expertise, Eric. So I would probably don't really want to kind of hang my hat on that one. But my my general understanding is that's not an issue. What the issue is is that what we may find is on the on the wait list, there's a disproportionate amount of of um, of people from Black, Indigenous, and and persons of color on there. Coupled that with with the reduced number of donors within those uh, uh, cultural groups, it's kind of a two pronged issue. And what we found looking at some of the literature around studies trying to increase the rates of organ donation, uh, I mentioned that there's been studies conducted in community settings, and some of those have been targeting certain ethnic groups such as Black or Hispanic uh, individuals. And what we've seen, albeit these numbers are quite small in terms of studies, they've actually had very good results. And these are engaging with people from the community uh, in terms of outreach, people actually going into communities and communicating the reasons why organ donation is important, debunking some of the myths that may be prevalent, and actually leveraging community leaders and opinion leaders and who are credible within those communities and kind of building that into the strategy itself. So it isn't just a mass email or a mass postal campaign. It's actually more intense. It's tailored. It's using culturally appropriate strategies to try and engage with those communities, to try and relay information and, and kind of, uh, again, just add support to, to that, those communities as well, which I think there is some positive findings, but I think there's further work to be done there. Excellent. All right. We've got about five minutes left. So I'm going to ask you one final question, which is somebody out there is listening and they're on the fence about becoming an organ donor and talking to their family about it. What would you say to that person? Uh, and what sort of messaging can we use going forward? Uh, we're going to be talking about this throughout the month of April yeah. is be a donor month. Uh, and so we want to have some positive messages. We want to be able to convince a few people to do this. What what are those messages? Yeah, so I guess the first uh, the first thing I would rec recommend is actually go into those trusted sources of information. The examples that I gave uh, with some of the uh, provincial and territorial uh, resources, which I think, you know, being informed and, and being well-informed is, is is kind of the starting point to, to figure out whether this is something something for you. Secondly, you know, it is just a two-minute process. Uh, you can go in, I think you have to be over 16 years old, and there's no age limit after that to, uh, to register. So in terms of the time, it, it's really not a lot of time to do that. In addition, the third thing, if you do feel that this is a, a an important thing to do or a worthwhile thing to do or like an altruistic thing to do, you know, thinking about those different psychological mechanisms around feeling about anticipated regret if you don't register and also that feeling of reciprocity, make sure you tell people, make sure you tell families and friends and next of kin. I mean, no one wants to think about the possibility that they would, their family and next of kin will be put in that situation uh, to make decisions about this on their behalf. However, 
what we know is it's really, really important to have those conversations so families are aware uh, of that decision. Um, and that will, because ultimately, when we speak to families making decisions, more often than not, they really want to respect the decision of their loved one. And that's why it's so important to to make sure you share that that preference for organ donation if that's something you choose to do with families and, and next of kin so i guess those are those are a few things um as well i mean there's also really great kind of uh, social campaigns like green shirt day uh and and organ donation month and and i think different provinces have that so engage with engage with those events those campaigns i think you know there's not a there's not that many altruistic and pro-social health behaviors out there however donation Blood donation, tissue donation, uh, plasma donation, and organ donation and tissue donation are some of those uh, really pro-social health behaviors that really do make a massive difference to people's lives. No doubt. All right. Now we have two minutes left, but I have a follow-up question because <laughs> something just sparked in my mind. You said that 16 is the age uh, at which you can become an organ donor. And I seem to recall when I first got my driver's license that the organ donation was part of getting that driver's license, that I checked that box when I got my license, you know, like 10 years ago when I was 16 mm. or whenever, I, like a long time ago. Uh, am I imagining that? Did that actually happen? And is that one of the ways that uh, they're trying to target uh, people to convince them? Yep. So that's that's still the case. So if you go down, get your driver's license uh, filled out, they will ask you whether you agree to a donation. Um, that is something that is being focused on. That setting, going and getting your license renewed or getting your first license is sometimes being interventions trying to increase awareness and, and motivation and intention for registration is actually happening in those settings. But yeah, you're not mistaken, that is still the case. A few years ago when I uh, got my first Ontario license, I did, uh, I was asked that question and it does have on my license donor uh, on there. So um, so that that is an area that's still being leveraged. To, uh, to try and increase the number of people registering. Big thanks to Dr. Jake Croshaw for joining us today on Mindful, and thanks to all you at home or in the car for listening, streaming, and downloading our episode today. More information on organ donation in your province is available in the show notes. Mindful is hosted, written, and scheduled by me, Eric Bowman. Jamie Montgomery produces and edits each episode, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.